0: Today, according to the ancient Christian calendar, is the first Sunday in what is known as Lent. Lent takes its name from the Latin word for 40. If you grew up in a tradition that made that rather prominent, or if you have friends that are in a tradition that makes that pretty prominent, you probably associate it entirely or almost entirely with giving something up. There is that. But it is primarily a season in which there is a time for reflection and repentance. Martin Luther, his complaint against the church of that day was that it had reserved repentance to a season when in fact he argued that repentance was the entirety of our life. And to that we can only shake our heads in agreement. And yet in a world in which repentance kind of gets pushed to the margins, as something to do during on Sunday maybe is it so crazy to be invited into a season of repentance through what we know is Lent? Look, reflection and repentance is not simply a change of behavior, though it leads to that. It is ultimately and most importantly a change of our heart. It is the healing of our affections, of our deepest desires. That's the nature of repentance. And in that healing, it makes sense. Because Jesus, in all the ways he styled himself, one way in which he did was to cast himself as a physician. As one who had come to cure the soul. And so, we began a series last week that we're going to go for the next few months that we're calling House Calls. Which for me to title it that certainly dates me. Because there was a time, get this instead of going to a doctor's office and sitting in their waiting room, they came to your house and sat in your living room, and you made them wait for 45 minutes. <laughs> they would bring all the expertise they had and whatever instrumentation they could fit in their trunk to come find out what was wrong and maybe offer you something in the way of healing. That was their gig. That was their house call. Friends, welcome guests. If we understand Jesus is who he is, then what he came to do was to make the ultimate house call. To come unto his own to those who did not receive him. And yet to make it a possibility that they could become children of God to cure that which was their deepest affliction. That's the nature of our series. That's what we're doing. Last week we listened to Chip Reed talk to us about the story of Zacchaeus. This week, on the first Sunday of Lent, we're actually going to look at what is at the end of the Lent storyline. On the morning of Jesus' execution, he's going to have an encounter, a most unlikely encounter, over a very ironic statement. Because whenever Jesus would come to ask, at whatever time, what can I do for you? That question was always leading to a more important question, the real question, and that is this. Who Do you say that I am? That's the real question. Not where did he come from. Not what did he look like. Not what was he capable of. Who is he? That's the question. And that's why C.S. Lewis put it really starkly a long time ago when he said this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Mm. Who do you say that he is? And what follows from what you believe about who he is. That's the question he puts to us all. And he's out to tell this person he's going to have the encounter with today who he is. Not simply for his own knowledge sake. But because in somehow knowing him there's a kind of healing. That's what we want to ask. What does it matter that we know who he is? And in what way is that healing? Let's find out. We're going to hear three things about him. About his person, about his place, and about his purpose. His person, his place, his purpose. If you're able to stand, we're in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll start in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we, have not, would we, have, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. It's the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks be God. You can sit. You don't miss any detail in what John says. Did you notice the setting? It was early morning. This is the day that Jesus is going to get killed. And everything that's happened at this point has happened under cover of darkness. And John wants you to know it. And in every direction you look in the first two-thirds of this passage, it's just full of irony. Okay, back to grammar class, everybody, or literature class. What's irony? Irony is something that happens in exact contrary expectation to what you were thinking was going to happen. People act in ways that you never thought they would, or they don't act in ways that you thought that they should. That's irony, and there's irony all over this thing. Here's the first. Here's a bunch of Jewish authorities who have seen fit to have him arrested under cover of darkness, who have tried to get any number of specious charges To stick. They can't do it. And therefore they try to trump up the charges to make it look like he's worthy of being called a criminal. And they can't get it. And they're doing everything they can to let this innocent man become guilty. And what are they worried about? About becoming ritually defiled. They don't want to go into Pilate's headquarters because in the way they understood the law, you couldn't even walk into a Gentile's domicile because that would make you unfit to enter into the temple during Passover. These guys are worried about getting ritually defiled, but they don't care a whit about whether they're acting in accordance with the truth or in accordance with the law. Irony number one. Irony number two. The way Pilate acts. He doesn't care about the Jews. He's some Roman governor probably put in his mind that this one sort of backwater post. He's done everything he can to alienate and offend the Jews. He's taken some of their um, sacrifices and mixed it with the blood and entrails of Gentiles just to thumb his nose at them. He doesn't care about them. And what does he do? He accommodates these authorities. He lets them get him up early in the morning so that he can kind of deal with this and wipe his face and have his tea. What are you here for? And he asks them, what is the accusation you're making against this guy? And the Jews have the audacity to say, Would we be getting you up if he hadn't done something wrong? Like they never issue the charge. They just sort of say, Isn't it obvious? Why else would we have awoken you so early? Irony number two. Irony number three. That happens. Pilate goes into Jesus. They chat for a while. And Jesus ends talking about truth. And Pilate says truth. What is truth? Are we, is he being cynical? Is he just tired? Is he like me? He's an atheist before his coffee? Who knows? <laughs> what is truth? And yet, here's the dude of anybody in the room who lets his conscience guide him to say, there is no truth to this accusation. You guys take it. I can't find anything wrong with him. All of those ironies are to set up the biggest irony on display. On the day that a bunch of guys from the muckety-mucks among the religious establishment are out to prepare for the Passover, oh, they have found their Passover lamb. And they're in a hurry to get his throat slit. They found their scapegoat. And as the high priest put it, Caiaphas, it is better for one man to die for the whole country than any of us else suffer. Ho, traumatic irony. John tells a great story. All of those ironies are to set up the irony of what Jesus says to Pilate. Because here he is, a man in chains, out to have this really remarkable conversation with the guy that really has a level or a kind of authority. And in this first moment, in that first encounter, Jesus is out to make one thing very clear about his person, who he is. Two times, Pilate asks him, So, tell me, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus kind of doesn't answer directly. He's kind of playing the misdirection game. He doesn't even kind of play with it. The first time, Pilate asks, Are you the king of Jews? And Jesus doesn't answer. He says, So, um, did you come up with that with yourself? Or did somebody tell you about me? And then at the end of their little encounter, Pilate says, Look, so you are a king. I knew it. And Jesus says, All right, look, that's your word. You say that I am. We'll go with it. Why is he being difficult? He is a king. He's just not like a king anybody else knew. And that's why he's... Anytime you use the word king, everybody invokes all sorts of associations for what kings are like. Oh, you're a king. Oh, I know what that means. And Jesus says, no, you don't. The first thing he's out to tell him, the first thing he's out to tell us that for some reason is going to be a source of healing for us is that he's a king. He's just not like any king you and I know. And if he's a king, he's worthy of one thing. Honor. Honor. So what kings and queens are worthy of, honor. Look, <clears throat> uh, you and I, we hear the word king, and we go, what do we know about kings? We threw off the tyranny of kings 275 years ago. Kings are for what other people have, and I, I only say to you with a certain measure of respect, yeah, you, you turn on every political rally for the next 10 months, and you tell me we don't know anything about kings. Selfies. Adulation, admiration, projecting all of our hopes and dreams upon individuals, weeping at their defeat and triumphing in their win. Yeah, we don't know anything about kings. Here's the thing. For Jesus to say something that he's a king, it's to make this implication. You are not. Why do you need to hear that? C.S. Lewis, in another book of his called The Problem of Pain, said the primordial sin the thing that's at the root of every one of mine yours and mine sorrow and tragedy is a turning a turning from God to the self of displacing the Lord from his rightful place as one who is a king in a certain way and putting ourselves in that throne and if you think that's not true then look around. I mean, we've said it even from this pulpit in recent months. What's the one thing that most everybody is talking about almost incessantly to the point where you want to sort of stick your finger in your mouth and just stop? Identity. Identity is everything. Who you think you are and who you want others to believe you are has almost become a sacred category such that if anybody should maybe question or ask questions about that or, or maybe challenge it or maybe even ridicule it, like, it's the equivalent of having blasphemed a God. You have stepped upon the sacred providence of how I understand myself, and identity is everything. Why? Because the self has become everything. So no, C.S. Lewis is not whistling Dixie. And... That's what happens to us when we make the self-everything. Now you may think, so what? Look, we've lived under different tyrannies of certain beliefs and it's time for the self to assert itself. And and have we not seen wondrous things when people start thinking about submitting to anything other than their own self? Fine, what's the problem with that? I'll tell you what the problem is with it. When you have made yourself your God, then your greatness has become everything. Your honor has become everything And therefore, whatever expectations somebody has put on you, or whatever expectations you put on yourself, that is the thing that if you get there, bless you. God bless you. You bless you, right? But if you don't get there, you've just found your own private hell. And if I could just carve out to you just one little slice of where that place is, That danger of of making you your king and therefore your honor and your greatness one place where it's really rearing its head, it's what's happening to our kids. There's a study that came out last week from the uh, Institute of Family Studies that uh, now documents the extent to which youth are so full of anxiety these days. The question is, why are they so overwrought? Why are they so beside themselves? Why is it that the that the smallest things can become in their minds the most immense things to them. Why are they so full of anxiety? And I know even time you ask a question like that, it, you're all, we're, everybody's susceptible to making oversimplifications. But there's at least one thread that probably sounds really logical, even if you have never read a study like that. And that is, it was captured by what one, I think, 17-year-old girl said of a belief that she had come to internalize. And that belief was this. Be all you can be and had nothing to do with the army. Live up to your potential and then you've made it. Nothing wrong with being a good steward of what you have. Nothing nothing wrong with with trying to use gifts and talents and opportunities in your moment in ways that are fruitful. Great, but when you tell somebody, that's it, be all you can be. That's that's the, the high watermark of life. Well, what happens if you don't get there? What happens if you fail that expectation, whether it's of somebody else's or your own? What if you are seeking your own honor and and maybe you even get there, but you yourself don't believe it, then no wonder you fall apart. No wonder you're frail. No wonder you're failing about. And if only it were reserved to the younger generation. Jesus is out to say to you, you are not a king. I am a king. And you live for my honor. And somehow in that, there's a kind of rest. What does it mean to live for his honor? Because that sounds so high-minded. You might boil it down into two moves, a personal and a public move. To live for the honor of a king is to do so in a personal way. To to obey what he has said. To To make his will your own will. to, To long to love as he loves and to despise what he despises. And that is a spiritual act. And you can't fake it. And you can't kind of make yourself feel that way. It's a spiritual thing that you are in need of assistance in order for that to be true. But that's what it means for it to be personal. For him to be a king and to believe that he is a king. Is to walk in a personally way in which you're following his lead. That's a personal part. But that also has a public dimension. But whatever you become persuaded of in a very personal way, it naturally just sort of spills out into the way you do your life. It's not something you hide under a bushel. It's not something that you purposely and intentionally and strategically try to conceal. It just has this natural public way. The Apostle Peter, the one who was so full of himself, who said, I will die with you and within days is running for the hills. Who spoke with bravado. And then is abandoning Jesus in his darkest hour. Yeah, that one. You know, just like you and me. Jesus restores him. Jesus commissions him to a work. And eventually Peter writes a letter. And what does Peter say it is to honor Christ as Lord? He says, to be prepared for a ready defense for the hope that is in you. If anybody asks, and to do so with gentleness and respect the opportunity will come to ask, why do you hope? Why do you follow? Why do you call him your king? That you have a few words, your words, not somebody else's, your words, but you're not obnoxious about it. You're not ostentatious about it, but you're ready. And your readiness is circumscribed by gentleness and respect. That's what it means to honor him in a public way. Now, I'm about to show you a clip from somebody that I think kind of captures that both personal and public dimension in short order. And you're going to see this, and there may be a part of you that thinks, oh my gosh, this preaching ministry has fallen into the ditch. (laughs) Because I'm going to do what Christians are unfortunately notorious of, and that is put up a celebrity who is talking about Jesus, and as if to imply, oh look, the celebrity's in, you should be too. I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm just using a celebrity's voice, kind of get your attention for just for a minute. He's not just somebody that nobody knows. He's somebody that a lot of people know. But I also put his voice up there again, not to say, be like him, but for you to listen to, I think, what captures this idea of honoring Christ as Lord in both a personal and public way, okay? So I'm apologizing in advance. Ready? Here we go.
1: I just didn't know what ah. the was going on, and so I really took a deep dive in my faith, to be honest. I just went deep into like... I believed in Jesus, but I never really, like, you know, when it says following Jesus is actually turning away from sin. Mm. And so there's no, what what it talks about in the Bible, it's like there's no obedience. There's no faith without obedience. So it's like I had faith about, like, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, but I never really implemented it Mm. into my life. I never, like, was, like... I'm going to be obedient.
0: So when did you decide to actually move within the guidelines and how did you find yourself away from, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to drink or do drugs or sleep around or all these other distractions? How did you get out of that world?
1: What was the turning point for you? I think it was my perception of who Jesus really was. You know, Um, I'd had really bad examples of Christians in my life. Uh, who would say one thing and do another. So they were the, my direct example of who Jesus was. That's why you didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. Good role Yeah, the way I look at my relationship with God and with Jesus is I'm not trying to earn God's love by doing good things. God has already loved me for who I am before I did anything to earn and deserve it. It's a free gift by accepting Jesus and just giving your life to him and what he did is the gift the forgiveness is the thing that we look at him you know i'm gonna worship you god because you gave me something so good
0: do you think that if you hadn't redefined what jesus was and reclaimed it into something that was worthy of practice for you Mm -hmm. which then led you on a path of reconciliation with your wife Mm -hmm. do you think the person that you, the you of then was on a path of self-destruction
1: do you feel that you were on a you were self-destructing oh for sure yeah i would have for sure 100 percent. yeah
0: i'm not trying to make you into a believer <laughs> a lot of you laughed at that that's really good your fingers on the pulse of culture And I don't put him up there as like, look what the celebrity does. I'm just saying that captures what it means to honor Christ as Lord. There's a personal dimension and a public one. It's not complicated. It's rather straightforward. It's the nature of honoring his person. But he doesn't just tell us about his person. He also tells us, if you will, about his place. And I put the word place in quotation marks. His, his province, his, his realm, the territory over which he rules. And I, where I get that is from what happens on three separate instances in those few encounters, few, those few verses with Pilate, where Jesus could maybe be accused of being coy on the front end about the question about who he's a king. Jesus kind of launches in three times, and he says the word, My kingdom. My kingdom, my kingdom, ha, see, king, right? Can't be a king without a kingdom. Can't have a kingdom if you're not the king, right? There it is. Three times, my kingdom. So yes, he is a king. But every time he talks about my kingdom, he's out to say this. My kingdom is not like the one you know of. It's not from here. It's not of here. It doesn't have its being, its roots, its foundations, its animating principles, its ultimate priorities. It's not like the kingdoms that you know. So now you kind of know why Jesus is playing a little possum here. Because anytime you start using the word kings and kingdoms, everybody starts to associate you with all sorts of things. And Jesus is saying, I'm not the king you think I am. And this is not the kingdom you think I'm part of. If this kingdom was like every other kingdom you know, then what would Jesus have done? He would have conscripted spies and soldiers, and he would built a library and come up with a PR team. I mean, the disciples were no PR team, right? Awful. Just horrible at their job. Fire them. Get out. Shark tank. Go. You're done. You're, you're dead to me. He's, if it's that kind of kingdom, he would have done that, but it's not that kind of kingdom. Every other kingdom starts this way. It's, it started with staking your claim on a realm of territory. And then what do kingdoms do? They try to enlarge their borders and enrich themselves for their own sake. And Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. I'm not that kind of king. This kingdom will not be established by violence or a deed. This kingdom will be established by a death. And it will enlarge its borders Not by violence, not by coercion, but by the persuasion of kindness through sacrifice. That's the kingdom I'm a part of here. And every other kingdom you know has come, ascended, plateaued, and decayed, and died. Not mine. This one shall prevail. This one shall be without end. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what he says. And you hear all that, and I hear all that, and I go, man, yeah, good stuff. Sounds like poetry. Sounds like nothing more than poetry, though. What does it matter? What does it look like to believe in a kingdom that's like no other that the gates of hell shall not prevail against? It comes down to a certain kinds of posture. Not posture, but a way of interbeing. A few kinds of posture. One is a posture... Of pursuit. That inasmuch as Justin Bieber said, that to be made his child has nothing to do with whether you earned it, deserved it. You don't. It is entirely that it comes to you. You are the passive recipient of a gift you could not merit. And yet the kingdom, to live in accordance with the kingdom, that's that takes a posture of pursuit. Why? Thomas Merton was a monk in the 20th century. He died in the 40s. He was part of a monastery not far from here in Kentucky. 75 years ago, he wrote this about Western civilization and his lament over its nature. He said this, I lament a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension to strain every human desire to the limit and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. That's not from 2019. That's from the 1940s. Imagine the heart attack he, have, he would have if you're walking around today. He is saying, you're in a kingdom And that kingdom is out to pursue you. And the thing is, you'll let it. Because there's so much of it that's wonderful and delightful and excites the senses. And starts telling you stuff that you thought you needed. And you thought, "Whoa, whoa, I think I'm in a Dr. Seuss album here. What is this? I didn't need that, but surely enough, there it is. The kingdom, Jesus says, in a number of his parables, is something that you give all to have. It's like a pearl of great price that you sell everything you've got that you might have it. There's a sense in which you pursue it. Why? Because this world, the kingdoms that are rooted here and originate here and are animated by all of its priorities and virtues here, it's coming for you. And though you don't look at everything that's out here with a certain disdain, there's plenty of common grace in every element that's coming around to you. But you have to know that to live in his kingdom is to pursue it. And that's why Thomas Merton says at another time, that one who is drawn to this kingdom has a deep sense that God alone suffices. The need to win the approval of society, to find a recognized place in the world, to achieve a temporal ambition, to be somebody, even in the church, to them seems irrelevant. God, what if I believe that? This world will teach you to want that and to be relevant. But to believe according to his kingdom is to pursue a kingdom that doesn't follow play by those rules. It's a posture of pursuit, it's also a posture of presence. When you come to believe in Jesus as a king of a kingdom that is unlike any other kingdom, you do not immediately burn your U.S. passport. That's actually a federal offense. Don't do that. You don't burn your passport. You don't renounce your citizenship. You don't pretend. You, don't, you, you keep paying taxes. Like, I would recommend that. You don't change everything, even though you become a citizen of a kingdom. But you become a different kind of citizen. And in whatever other kingdom that is of this world, you become an exile. Like Peter says, Like the prophet Jeremiah says, one who believes in God, who is the king of their world, is to become an exile. One who makes his way in this world, finds a way to make it as homely as possible, but to realize you are not home. So how do you live in that world as an exile? Home, but not home. What Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city that God has sent you to. Seek its good. Because in seeking that city's welfare, you find your own, he says. It is to be in a posture of presence to the world, to study it, to understand it, to engage it, to serve it, to beautify it, to leave it better than you left it if you can. It may even mean you get involved in advocacy and justice and mercy and, God forbid, politics. You might actually become involved in politics for the sake of being present under the world because all of that presence could be boiled down to something rather simple. Love enacted. To live in his kingdom is to not retreat into your little enclave and say, I'm just going to watch the world burn. It's to engage it and maybe even die trying. But as soon as I say that, I have to say something else. Because as much as there's a posture of pursuit and a posture of presence, to live according to his kingdom is also to live with a posture of hope. And by that I mean this based upon some certain statistics that any of you can find. In 2016, do you know how many billions of dollars were spent on the presidential campaign? $2.4 billion. Add the congressional campaigns to that, an additional $4.2 billion. $6.5 billion on political campaigns. In 2020 alone, you can look it up tomorrow. I'm sure it's gotten larger. South Carolina just happened. Nevada just happened. As of March 1st, on the presidential campaigns alone, $1.8 billion spent on campaigns. Look, you talk about democracies, you can play the positive game like Churchill did. Democracy is the worst of all systems, except for all the rest, right? That's Churchill. Or, or you can play the, the sociologist Noam Chomsky line. The system is broken. It needs to be burned down. We need to start all over. I don't care where you are. You're Churchill. You're Chomsky. Here's the point. If aliens came and observed our country or Western civilization just to observe, you know what they would discover? I think they would think, hmm, you people put a lot of stock in who ends up going to be your ruler next year. Clearly. You drop six and a half billion dollars? I know where your hope is. And that's not just true of people who don't believe in God. It's true of a lot of people who do. Oh gosh, have I stepped into minefield? (laughs) Kristen Dee Johnson. She's a professor of theology at Western Seminary. She just wrote the first chapter of a book that's coming out next month called Uncommon Ground. And she makes this observation about the way Christians think about kingdoms of this world too often. She says Christians in the latter decades of the 20th century focused on politics as the best way to enact cultural change, dedicating much time, energy, and money toward that end. It's not clear, however, that cultural change works the way those Christians assumed it did. Too often, they prioritized politics to the neglect of other formative cultural institutions. And the callings of everyday Christians to engage in those institutions. Uh-oh. Now I've stepped in it. She's not saying disengage and to go become your local Anabaptist com- commune. She is saying, do you realize how easy it is to fall into the trap of putting your ultimate hopes on what happens November 7th? Politic, advocate, seek policy Change. Great. Just realize you're part of another kingdom that will not be without end will be without end. How does that change your calculation? It changes your calculation in the way WH Auden put it in his Christmas oratorio. He said this Let us acknowledge our defeats, but without despair, for all societies and epochs are transient details, transmitting an everlasting opportunity. That the kingdom of heaven may come, not in our present and not in our future, but in the fullness of time. Let us pray. Present, but with hope. That's what it means to believe in the kingdom. And there's healing in that because you're, you're not afraid to be involved and engaged and to die trying. But you're also not obsessed in what happens in the next ten months. And that all leaves then one last question. Great. Honor Christ as a king in a personal and public way and live in accordance with the kingdom through a posture of pursuit and presence and hope. But how? Because that all just sounds really tiring. It also might sound like scary. And the answer to those concerns are answered in the third thing he has to say to us. What was his purpose? We've heard about his person. We've heard about his place. What's his purpose? His purpose is what you heard him say in verse 37. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The ironic thing is that the Jewish authorities are out to distort the truth about what he's done, trump it up, package it, make it look great so that it's a slam-dunk case, even though it's false. Or you've got Pilate who's out to deny the very existence of truth. Truth, don't bother him with the truth, dude. And Jesus is here to say, I will neither distort it nor deny it. I will testify to it. In what sense? Sort of in a generic way? Like there is such thing as truth? Or is there something more specific? It's more specific. You just kind of replay his tape from even just the Gospel of John. If you wanted to distill down what is the truth to which Jesus wants to testify, I think you can nail it down into two heads. One is the truth of our condition. And the truth of our condition is this. You and I are those who have both dignity and disgrace. Both dignity and and disgrace define our innermost persons and our reality. We are made in the image of God and that dignity is an inviolable category of who we are because of what who he is to us, not of anything that we've done. And yet in our attempt to replace him and put ourselves on that throne, we have reaped the whirlwind. We are full of sorrow. We are full of anxiety. We're full of tragedy. It is a condition of dignity and disgrace. Hear it another way. You're worse off than you ever knew and yet more beloved than you could ever imagine. That's our condition. But the other head, the other truth to which he testifies is the compassion of God. He hasn't left us to ourselves. Fine. Man, that was a mistake. Enjoy. And nor did he just come to kind of give us a motivational speech and to tell us to do better. You didn't do that either. He came and suffered for us. He came and suffered with us. He came and suffered as us. He came to do something and accomplish something that you and I could not do for ourselves. That's the gospel. He came to testify to those two truths in his life, in his words, in his death. And gosh, imagine if you're Pilate right then. Pilate's hearing all this and he's thinking, this guy says he's a king. Does he not notice the chains he's wearing? This guy says he's part of a kingdom and yet apparently his subjects are throwing him under the bus. And, and here's a guy that's saying he's testifying to the truth but doesn't he realize that he's probably going to be dead by nightfall? Oh, the irony. Oh, the glory. He would have to die. His voice would have to be silenced that both may rise again. That was the point. That was the purpose. To testify to the truth and then to show what lengths he would go to prove he were true. He dies to rise. It's the gospel. It's what he's out to do. It's his purpose for us. Jesus dies in dishonor so that we might live for his honor. But not in order to gain his honor, but because we already have it in his love. That's the simplicity of it. Somehow that's the healing of it. He dies in dishonor, that we might live for his honor, but not to gain it, but because we already have it. Look, a lot of Protestants have a problem with Lent. And it's fine. There are plenty of ways in which you might practice Lent that it feels almost like a lifeless, rigorous burden. But here's the thing. If Luther's right, that life is all of repentance, and if it's true that you and I think about repentance maybe once every seven days, (laughs) then is it so crazy to be invited into a season where you're being asked to reflect and then beg his mercies that your heart might be healed? I don't think it's crazy. What does Lent invite you to consider? Whether you've set up an alternative king that you're paying obeisance to and you didn't really realize it. Or that you've been living with an ultimate hope in a kingdom that is not an ultimate kingdom. And that's not just a political statement. Or have you tried to do the thing that only Jesus can do for you? And that's to make you righteous and acceptable and enough. Is your most animating principle to become your own savior? Well, that's something we all have to repent of. And I'd like to say you only had to do it once. But then I'd be lying. To this he calls us. To this Lenten journey he calls us. He calls me. And he calls me at the beginning of that Lent to set aside any patronizing nonsense that Jesus is just a great moral teacher. You can write him off if you want. You can fall at his feet in worship. But for God's sake, don't domesticate him. Because if he's Lord, then maybe he can heal us. Let's pray. I'm glad that you say to us that we're frail and we're but dust. That from dust we come and to dust we shall return. I thank you that you would have made sure that it, it would have been in this word that A man would speak our own hearts when he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord Christ, would you help us to believe that you're king, that it is not in vain that we should live for this kingdom, and that in fact you have done for us what we seem to be trying to take out of your realm of responsibility almost every day, and yet which we cannot, and fail at it anyway. Help us to believe And to rest. And in that rest. To love. Amen.